1: So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at Byheart.com.
2: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hits. I've got a treat for you today because we're talking about one of the most remarkable men in British and US history. He's a guy called George Washington. You may have heard of him. A wonderful historian called Alexis Coe has just written a new biography. It is called You Never Forget Your First. A biography of George Washington, referring to the fact that he was, of course, the first president of the United States of America. This was, frankly, not one of his most important positions. He was a reasonably competent commander of the Virginia militia, serving under George the Second and George the Third. That was—I I like to think those were the glory days, really, of George Washington's career. When a bit pear-shaped later on, as we might say in Britain, uh, he flirted with sedition, uh, with outright treachery, rebellion. He went on to lead. a You know, reasonably successful. You've got to give him this attempt to drive British rule out of the 13 colonies. Not all the colonies on the Atlantic, of course. Glad to see the Canadian colonies maintained the sense to uh, stick with the Brits. Give give him another century or two. But yeah, Sir George Washington, actually fascinatingly, as a young officer. He blundered onto the world stage by effectively starting the Seven Years' War, the French-Indian War. He was then defeated by the French and their their indigenous allies. Then he did a reasonably good job of guarding the Virginia frontier for the rest of the French-Indian War. And then, as I say, unfortunately, became a traitor to the cause after that. Doggedly kept the Continental Army together, despite being underfunded, undersupplied, and led it to a few remarkable victories, particularly a place like Trenton. I was thrilled to talk to Alexis Coe. It's an interesting time to be talking about American presidents at the moment. It's always an interesting time, to be honest. I'm looking forward to coming to America later in the year and interviewing some more historians, so we're going to be expanding operations over there. We have just released our most ambitious film yet, The History of Strategic Bombing in the Second World War. Uh, It features James Holland, Paul Beaver, Victoria Taylor, Max Hastings, Vic Greg, veterans of bombers, veterans who witnessed bombing from the ground, survivors, all sorts of people. So please go over to historyhit.tv, check that out. As ever, if you use the code POD6, P-O-D-6, you actually get six weeks for free, so you can watch the whole thing for free if you like. As of today, we are moving our 2015 and 2016 episodes, all the O's episodes of the pod, exclusively onto historyhit.tv. You can't get them anywhere else in the world. Uh, Please go and subscribe to historyhit.tv and say use the code pod6 binge them all there if you like for free and also coming up this week on history at tv we've got our film about notable women throughout london's history coming up to mark international women's day as well so what's going on join the revolution more subscribers than ever it's very exciting time so thank you very much everyone who's made the jump in the meantime everyone here is alexis co Alexis, thank you very much for coming on the podcast.
3: Thank you for having me. I'm a big fan.
2: Well, I, listen, I'm a big fan both of you and of the first president, a lot of lot of Brits. In fact, everyone, the Brits, the Royal Navy lowered their ensigns to half-mast when George Washington died, so much respect did they have for their great nemesis. But tell me why everyone is losing their mind about your book. Did you set out to consciously write a very different kind of presidential biography?
3: I did. I'm a political historian in America, and I, I love presidential biographies, and I usually read three in conversation. But when I read Washington biographies at the end, I, I, it... I couldn't get anywhere, thousands and thousands of pages. I understood they they thought he was great. They, they commented a lot about his manliness, which I feel like, as you've just pointed out, is sort of a foregone conclusion. Everyone respects him. He can take it, you know, he can take a, a different kind of a view. And so I wanted to present it differently. I wanted to proceed differently. And I also, when I checked their primary sources in the archives, I found that they either had just been quoting each other for hundreds of years or, you know, the story just completely didn't check out. It was really different. The context was more interesting. And that's the story I wanted. I also, presidential history is written in America it's known as dad history. It's sold on Father's Day, on President's Day. It's a size matters crowd. The, it's usually like a thousand pages. And, and I wanted to take this opportunity to reach out to other readers who I fully believe, and, and, and I think this is a part of the reception, are desperate for good presidential history that um, isn't just about masculinity and, and destiny and, and American greatness. They, they just want to hear the story and they want to feel like they know the person.
2: There's a lot of hagiography around. You guys, those giant founding fathers. I mean, I have to say I'm a big sucker for them because I just love them. But they are just giant tomes, right? And there is a hushed... There's a hushed reverence to to that, which I think is that we Brits find that a bit weird because we think of you guys as the, you know, the Amer- like Americans. You're not you're not reverential about anyone, <laughs> and yet you are about that generation.
3: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I find that so strange. So so as praise, one of the things that's been said about the book, about my book, is that it's irreverent. You know, tw- and th- this is a good word they use it in the twenty books to read in twenty twenty sort of thing. And first I thought, oh, that's very nice, and then I thought, how odd, how odd that we think irreverent. Is you know something to comment on, and we're so accepting of reverence. It, it's strange because it implies a, a bias, so you can't trust the biographer. And also, who do you know who's perfect? I mean, I have not lived through a single president that I can say was a perfect human. I've never met a perfect human. And it gives us the skewed understanding of the founding era, that these guys were sort of destined for greatness and our country was, was always going to be what it was. And none of that is true. None of it was a foregone conclusion. It denies Washington the real work and agency he had in his own story and the American story. It misrepresents our founding as if it was a monolith and if we as a whole country wanted to rebel against the crown that's that's also not true there were plenty of loyalists that's a part of the reason the war took so long and it doesn't allow us to really reconsider washington in his own world and his own time so you know this is this is a pretty big loss for you guys right but but the thing is he could have been yours the whole the whole trajectory of of america and of the british empire could have been different had you just given the guy the promotion he wanted
2: tell me about it dude tell me about it but I mean, you know, he, that's something we've been we've been beating ourselves up about for a long time. Let me tell you. But his military career was, as you point out, it's kind of hapless military career. Like obviously, great successes like at Trenton and crossing Delaware, but a list of errors. Like he's all too human, I think. If you look at his his military accomplishments
3: and failures. Yeah, I mean, let's be realistic here, because if we treat him like a god who could do no wrong, we're never going to understand what happened. One thing is, you know, he started a world war, the French and Indian War, that didn't go so well. And we think of him as, as being like a great, promising, young military man. And then, you know, during the war, he lost more battles than he won. He made all kinds of mistakes. And he he wasn't fighting on the front lines. He was in a tent most of the time. We were completely outmanned and outgunned, as Lynn manuel Miranda, you know, famously has put in hip-hop form. So how did we do it? Washington was a spy master. Washington understood propaganda. He understood that this, the court of public opinion, not only in America, you know, that the British Army wouldn't recognize America as, as a sovereign nation and therefore didn't have to follow the rules of war. So every incident he found of British cruelty, of rapes, of burning down of houses, of forceful taking of animals to eat, He made sure that everyone knew about that, and he also made sure that the world knew that, you know, you weren't following the rules of war. And that was important. And to deny him that sort of work is to um, also sort of degrade his legacy. He should get credit for that. And instead, we sort of focus on he was only good at the military, and he was otherwise very self-conscious about his lack of education. Sure, but he made up for it in real time. Okay, so let's go
2: through the things that we've given him a pass for that we should remember. I guess we've got to talk about slavery as, a, as a, an owner of enslaved human beings. Is that something that you think is important that we, we put back into this story?
3: Yeah, Amer- so there are two things Americans love. One is a man who overcomes a shrewish woman in order to achieve great things. So Washington's mother is presented as this terrible thwarting influence when in fact She was a struggling single mother who worked really hard to give him all advantages and made sure that he found an occupation, his first one, surveyor, that served him well and kept encouraging him actually to to quit military service for the British because you know he wasn't getting paid equally and it it wasn't a good investment in his future. And the other thing we love is the redemption story. And so uh, Washington, as the story goes, emancipated his slaves in his will and he was the only founding father to do so. That's a lovely story. That's not totally true. He emancipated one man outright, Billy Lee, who he had always thought of as exceptional. He was, you know, by his side during the war. And then when he was crippled in his service, he retired him and replaced him. The other 100, you know, 213 people, he did pave the road to emancipation, which, by the way, Ben Franklin also found or emancipated his slaves during his lifetime, so we can have that conversation another time. But he paved the road, and what he did was, you know, this was a good thing ultimately. It meant something to them, but it also, you know, meant that that they had to wait it out because it was up to Martha. She either had to die or decide to emancipate them martha was not of this mind she would not have done so if she didn't need to but according to abigail adams and a lot of other primary sources she feared for her life because washington's will this was a little bit about legacy was published so even if they couldn't read you know these rumors spread very quickly and in order to keep herself alive to protect herself she emancipates his slaves who have married hers, who have had children with hers. So when she dies two years after him, and her heirs split her enslaved people among themselves, families are broken up. You know, his slaves can try to live nearby. They can hope that they're allowed access, but that doesn't happen a lot. And it's a really devastating story. So so to understand the full arc of it is to understand what he set out to do, what he really did, and how we remember it. He didn't make these claims. His biographers have since made that claim. They've tried to sanitize him. And as you pointed out, it just doesn't, it doesn't teach us anything about, about the founding of our country and why we're, you know, we're a mess. We were always a mess. I find that comforting. I find that a lot more reassuring than some fairy tale about these perfect men. And one with wooden teeth, for God's sake.
0: For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
1: Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at Byheart.com.
2: I, I, I yeah, he had wooden teeth, of course. I agree, it makes me feel a lot better knowing that, that my that Napoleon and Caesar and uh, George Washington were just losers like me, chronically insecure, and always waiting for someone to tap them on the shoulder and tell them they've been checking them out and they're useless at their job. What, what else do we give him a pass for, do you think? What, what, how has his reputation been inflated?
3: We think of him as the great unifier, and that's certainly why he was elected. This was not a country that was born of one mind. There were still plenty of loyalists and people who thought that we should maintain a relationship with the British Empire. And then there were plenty of people who during the French Revolution thought, we've got to get in there. We've got to help this country. We would have never beaten, you know, we would have never won it in Yorktown. We would have never been at Yorktown if it weren't for the French. We, didn't, we barely had rowboats. <laughs> you know, you had a pretty good Navy. It was sort of famous. And so what we have here is someone who is a symbol and who thinks, okay, if I just keep being the symbol of unity, then the country will fall in place around me because he's also got the mindset of a military man. He thinks, okay, listen to people, but I'm the general. I hand down my pronouncement and everyone's going to follow what I say that didn't happen he said I don't want partisanship and what he did was he he ended up ushering partisanship into existence he had people you know famous founders like Hamilton and Jefferson argue their opinions in his cabinet meetings which he invented this cabinet but you know he did it in a way that made them feel as Jefferson would later describe like they were in a cockfight and that's an incredible you know analogy to use like my God god that hamilton and jefferson their razor beak they're drawing blood washington is either sort of like sitting silently watching this non-intervening or he's almost like you know ironically waving around dollar bills like you know go 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 and that's that fight spilled out into the street and the country ended up taking sides and he left an absolute mess an absolute partisan mess in America that we are still living through today. That's fascinating because, of course, that's not at
2: all uh, his reputation. Before we come into the things he was great that you do think he deserves praise for, is there anything else that, that actually his, where his reputation is undeserved?
3: Oh, sure. So it's funny. Washington, when he died, he was one of the greatest whiskey distillers in America had one of the biggest operations. You know, he was a businessman, which is a part of the reason he rebelled. He he wasn't, you know, he wasn't a Thomas Paine. He wasn't just like revolution hopping. He wanted to succeed as a businessman. He didn't feel like the British Empire was allowing him to do so. and, And so he took matters into his own hands after he had tried everything possible, you know, to his mind. He made a lot of mistakes. And one of the biggest ones, to my mind, is something he's often celebrated for, which was a bloodless rebellion. Well, the rebellion didn't happen. What happened was it was the greatest instance of executive overreach in our history. You know, he needed to pay off these debts that we were born with from the war. And so part of it was he agreed to Hamilton's whole financial scheme, a a central bank ironically modeled after the British system, and a tax on whiskey distributors and distillers in rural Kentucky and Pennsylvania. Now, this is pretty funny because these men didn't vote. So they were being taxed without representation and they didn't vote because they didn't own land. And they also were a relatively cashless society. They um, paid their rent in agricultural goods or in whiskey. So even if they wanted to pay these taxes, which they didn't because they didn't feel like they had a say in it, they couldn't. They really didn't have the cash for it. So instead of sort of like listening to them, to any of their many protests and letters, which was funny because that's of course what the Virginia Assembly sent to Parliament so many times, it was it was just like almost textbook, you know, the, the swap out the names, the situation is pretty similar. Instead of just sort of like trying to deal with it, he has just a huge overreaction. He listens to Hamilton who says anytime the government shows force, it has to come out like Hercules and he has a military uniform tailored for him for his you know older body that he has now and he rides out he's in a carriage but he's still riding out with the military who by the way he he sidesteps the constitution our sacred document gets a judicial writ and draws arms on his own people the irony is you know right before he gets there he turns around and the meeting place for this big rebellion that's supposedly happening is Braddock's Field, um, which is when, of course, you know one of your generals was felled on the field, and Washington, this young man, takes over. He he very dramatically grabs this red sash and he and he fights for the British. Well, they get to Braddock's Field and there's nobody there. These like supposedly six thousand rebels who are ready to take on the government, who Washington has taken so personally. They're not there because they, di- they didn't actually want to fight the government. They just wanted a fair shake of things. They have to work really hard to round up anyone. He ends up, you know, sentencing two to death and then he pardons them. So I don't understand why that's presented as a, a bloodless end, you know, a, a real triumph of his presidency. It was a crazy overreaction. Things could have been wild. And it it also he he won't let it go. He keeps talking about it for a really long time, and he ends up talking about it like, "Oh, I'm sure the French had something to do with it. This is all about partisanship. It's a terrible look for him." <laughs>
2: okay, so ignoring his his leadership during the war, which at times was clumsy and at times very very deft indeed, and you've mentioned the spy masters, some of the greatest achievements, some of the greatest praise for, for Washington. Am I right? It comes around him declining the opportunity to become a military dictator at the very end of the war when the army's refusing to demobilise, and then also his willingness to give up ultimate power, to step away from the presidency, ensuring the the tradition of, of peaceful transition. Does he deserve praise for those two particular foundational
3: acts? absolutely but then in context it wasn't that hard for him you know washington had everything to prove he wanted to be the center of his nation's story when he was a young man it didn't really matter what nation that was he he would have been happy being you know the most famous colonist in the british empire that didn't happen by the end of the revolution, he's pretty satisfied. He's done the unthinkable. He's got a plantation back home, a forced labor camp. He wants to get back to. You. He's a businessman. He wants to make a lot of money. He's got a. His Martha does not like to travel. There's just a lot calling him, and so when he gives up power, he's eager to do so. You know, he he writes to you know the powers of being. and he's like, "How do you want to do this? I really want to be home for Christmas." Everything about it is just like, "Okay, yeah, ceremony, ceremony." I just want to get home. I want to get home, and he indeed makes it home just in time for. Christmas the second time again He was desperate to get out of that situation when he was the president. Partisanship had erupted. He wasn't talking to half the people, half the founders. You know, I I call them frenemies, but you know, by the end, he was estranged from Jefferson. Thomas Paine wrote a scathing letter about him. His worst nightmare had been realized. Partisanship was rampant. He was getting older. He he wasn't just getting this blind respect he got as a general. He wanted to go home, and so that's absolutely true. He should receive credit for it. But you know, it was. also sort of innate he was by that time really secure so you 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 know the concern with trump is that you know would he give up power we don't know he's not secure and he's so power hungry that you know we don't know this but yes it, it is an amazing thing that he did if you know him you know it was never an option but look at the context he lived in you had a king most countries had a king We are a few years off from Napoleon. Napoleon will say, everyone expected me to be George Washington. I I couldn't be. There was only one George Washington. And that's absolutely true.
2: Well, thanks for bringing in the, the current uh, occupant of the office. Oh, I did it. I made the mistake. Well, you know what? It, it's hard not to eh, in these days. But I mean, what was it interesting? Last question, was it interesting writing this big work of presidential history? How did it make you feel about the current occupant? Did it make you think that this is an, an outrage? This is a sort of radical discontinuity? Or do you think, you know what? It's always been there.
3: I've gone through all the emotions. (laughs) I've gone through all the emotions during this time. You know, writing a book takes a long time, a a well-researched book. When I started in 2016, there are certain patterns to the American electorate and to um, our presidential history. And so I knew it's really uncommon after eight years that the same party wins again. At the same time, Trump was so at odds with someone like Washington. I was actually at Mount Vernon at his home the, the weekend before the election. And Everyone seemed to agree it would definitely be Hillary. And I, in fact, was taking notes in a notebook that said, first female president. And I thought, OK, I'm going to be writing this book while living through this time. How how very lovely. And then, despite, you know, getting three million fewer votes than Hillary Clinton, Trump assumes the presidency. And for a while, I play along as a presidential historian. I do my job and I, I show up on television and I give all the radio interviews But I felt a little bit like a hack and it also was such a dramatic experience to be living through that I didn't want to do it. And I'm really glad that I saved myself up after the first 100 days, which is significant to us because FDR sort of threw everything at the wall for the first 100 days and since has been regarded as some really significant time when it's really just trying anything that works to, to write course. After that last interview, I was like, I'm out and it's good because I'm asked about it constantly now. You know, I do, it's, it's like opposites day every single day. Everything that I wrote, everything that I studied is just the exact opposite plays out in the media. It plays out on Twitter. He could not be more different than Washington and even as threatened by that, Washington. He, he, you know, Trump visited Mount Vernon and said, you got to put your name on things or else nobody remembers you. Your job is in a city called Washington. Uh, no one's forgotten Washington. And, and I think a part of it is that, you know, he wasn't quite so insecure. So it's been, excuse my language, it's been batshit crazy.
2: Well, thank you, uh, that's good to know that you think so as well because it looks like that from over here. So thank you for I was in Mount Vernon the weekend of the presidential inauguration. so we only just missed each other by a couple of months. So, oh my goodness, uh, next time. Yes. So
3: thank you very much. Good luck with the book. It is called "You Never Forget Your First: a biography of George Washington. And It's out now. go and get it, everybody. Thank you. It was a pleasure..
2: I feel <laughs>
1: So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.
2: Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History Hit. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just one pound a month when you use code DAN SNOW at checkout.